BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. two of your Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Maya Dukmasova has joined us. Maya Dukmasova has joined us as promised. Ace writer for the Chicago Reader, my partner in crime at First Tuesday, dear friend of this show. Uh, and Maya, let's start with what is the big news in our life. We are going to be back uh, at the hideout, virtually speaking. So I want you to tell folks all the details. It's sort of like a Maya production. I just want to say this. Maya kind of thought the idea, put it together. No, we put it together together. Wheeled and dealed, you know, moved mountains. And now here we are. We put it together, both of us. I'm just giving you all the credit, all right? You can take it, okay? You should just say, yes, Ben. I did all the work. You did nothing. No, we did it together. So First Tuesdays is back on December 1st on the Hideout Online. Uh, and we have a very special a election kind of debrief with um, Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez and political strategist Peter Cunningham, also frequent guest of your show. Mm-hmm. Um we are going to talk about uh, what the Democrats did right and wrong uh, this election season, how it is that they were able to win the White House but lost several House seats, and what the strategy, their political organizing strategy, should be going forward. Um, we're kind of having a left versus center discussion. Um, there's already been quite a bit of that in the national news. Um, maybe some of your uh, listeners and readers have have been following this, but basically there's a lot of disagreement amongst uh, high-profile Democrats about whether it was focusing on more progressive issues and sort of um, uh, high-profile calls for, like, defunding the police and uh, Medicare for all and and policies like that that really energized and got a lot of uh, younger voters out, or whether that stuff actually hurt uh, the Democrats this election cycle and resulted in the loss of those House seats. So uh, there's a lot of disagreements between, you know, people like, you know, I don't know, Sherry Bustos and Abigail Spamberger uh, and uh, on the one side and then, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of the squad on the other. So we're, um, we'll, we'll talk about all this and discuss kind of lo- local ramifications as well. It should be a really good show. So, uh, if people are interested in joining, which you, I hope everyone is, because this is going to be a really good show, the um, 
the, the show will be online and uh, your $5 ticket gives you exclusive access to the, to the live stream and you'll be able to participate in the discussion as well. Um, the audio of the show, you guys will then upload on the podcast, but it's not something that you can like watch for free on Facebook later. So if you want to be there, you got to be there. Um, if you're, if you're looking for tickets, you can either find us on Facebook. There's a Facebook event page for this already. First Tuesdays left versus center, or you can go to uh, noonchorus.com slash hideout. And that's spelled N O O N C H O R U S.com slash hideout. Yeah. It's uh help out the hideout uh you know i know everybody's saying hey why 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 don't pay the five dollars i'll just hear it on ben's show uh, as a podcast drop in a week but you know what help out the hideout first of all you get to see it live you get to see our pretty faces uh but also help out our good friend timmy uh tutton at the hideout katie and uh you know they've been hit hard yeah uh, by the pandemic yeah. uh, as all venues have and the, and the hideout did a great job I just speak from my heart here of promoting a lefty politics. Like what other venue in Chicago would have given someone like me <laughs> a microphone. Uh, and then Maya too, after Mick Dumkey retired, Maya joined it. So, well, I don't know if Maya wants to be called a lefty journalist, but you know, people with alternative worldviews were given a prominent place at the hideout and an opportunity to bring uh, guests uh, to the stage. So uh, I urge everybody to help out and um, it'd be a fascinating conversation. Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, of course, is a democratic socialist in the city council, and one of the leaders of the defund police movement. And Peter P.C. Cunningham, everybody knows, listens to the show, former speechwriter for Mayor Richard M. Daly, former top aide to Arnie Duncan, a friend of Rahm Emanuel. Uh, he worked for Bill Daly. I don't know if you remember this, uh, Maya, but he was Bill Daly's press secretary. <laughs> so he's very much of the centrist persuasion. He's probably the most centrist person that comes on the show. And so I'm, I consider him precious. I don't get a lot of centrists uh, with those kinds of ties. Most of them uh, don't want anything you, to do with me, Maya. So I'm, you really uh, can't get any more center than <laughs> Peter Cunningham, any more left versus center than this show. Right. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, so it's, it's going to be interesting because this debate, as Maya just pointed out, Right now, it's Democrats don't quite know where to go. They don't quite know uh, what to make of the election where Biden got more votes than any other presidential candidate in the world. But guess what? Donald Trump came in second uh, in most votes by any other presidential candidate in the world. Uh, I just read the story here, Maya, that Democrats always talk about in 2016, how the margin of victory came to 77,000 votes in three key swing states. I just read this, that this time around, the margin of vote in the Electoral College came down to, I think, like 50,000 or so votes in three swing states, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, I want to say. So uh, Democrats are trying to figure out what the it message... Really squeaked by. Yes, electorally. It really squeaked by in every, in every, in every sense. Uh, it couldn't have been a, less of a landslide. In terms of electoral college, in terms yeah. of popular vote, uh, which you know, the rest of the civilized world uses popular vote, it's, it is arguably a landslide uh, for Biden. At least it's, I think it's his margin is uh, greater than Ronald Reagan's was against Jimmy Carter, and they call that a landslide. So anyway, uh, I'd be really curious to see where uh, Peter uh, Cunningham, uh, if there's any like common ground between the centrist 
uh, and the uh, Democratic Socialists as to what Democrats, what lessons Democrats should take away uh, that they do better. Uh, my, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you were my guest when we did the election night show, mm-hmm. which folks can listen to if they haven't heard already. We down, uh, we put that on the podcast. And I don't know if you remember what, what you were saying. You were, they, you yeah. were kind of in a, uh, in a bad place because Florida had gone for Biden. I mean, excuse me, had not gone for Biden. Do you remember what yeah. your, your mood that well, was at that moment? Yeah, I was just sort of assuming that uh, this was all going to go the way of Trump. And um, I felt like as far as, you know, just basing my analysis of, of what happened in Florida, it seemed pretty clear that the strategy of, you know, appealing to your you, you know, your middle of the line undecided voter wasn't terribly effective. I mean, the tragedy, the absolute tragedy in Florida is that this is a this is a, uh, a place that within a couple of years re-enfranchised almost two million former felons and then promptly disenfranchised them again by making it so, you know, they're not legally allowed to vote unless they pay back all their restitution. So voter suppression in Florida is like, you know, just just at its most uh um, raging expression. And, um, I'll be really curious to, to hear what, uh, Peter Cunningham and Rosanna think about, you know, what, what, what lessons we should draw from, yeah, from results in a place like Florida. I mean, are we supposed to continue where the democratic party is? It's supposed to continue to try to fight for these, like, you know, racist Cuban folks in Miami, uh, while, you know, there's, there's 2 million, disenfranchised people um, who are supposed to have their rights to vote restored uh, standing along alongside them. So, yeah, I'll, um, I'll really be curious to hear uh, what they think about what's, what's the strategy going forward. And then also, you know, how long can you, can you pursue um, the sort of middle of the line quote unquote swing voter, which by the way, again, like I really am skeptical about whether or not there is even such a thing as a swing voter in 2020. Um, I, I really have a hard time believing that very many people truly at the bottom of their hearts didn't have their mind made up long before election day about who they were going to vote for. Like you're either a person who votes for Trump or not. And, and and if you're a person that votes for Trump, you probably have your mind made up long before election day. It's just you know kind of a can be a, a socially expensive thing to to talk about uh, to media or to even tell to post to pollsters. So yeah, I um, you know I'm wondering how long can the Democratic Party spend time and, and and resources chasing after these swing voters who tend to skew older and tend you know tend to be boomers. Um, are people who are sort of the reliable voting base and continue to ignore the fact that there's a huge chunk of the population that doesn't vote. You know, young people don't vote. Um, how long do you want to keep uh, assuming that that's going to be the case without putting much effort into changing that? Yeah, I uh, and when I've watched what's going on in Michigan right now, which uh, one of my many obsessions, where uh, essentially right now the Republican Party uh, egged on, literally egged on by Donald Trump, he's calling uh, uh, the uh, officials who are on the um, uh, certification committee in uh, Wayne County, which is where Detroit is. He's literally calling them to say they should rescind their uh, certification votes. They're they're trying to throw out Detroit's votes by saying there's so much corruption in Detroit. Uh, 
what a blatantly racist move by the Republican Party. They're making it clear uh, this is how they they think it's legit. And this is how they're going to hold on to power. And effectively, Amaya, it's what they did in Florida, as you just said, uh, with the voters. The voters passed a law which would give felons the right to vote. And then yep. the Republicans passed a law to try to undo that by effectively putting a poll tax on them. So um, I I believe that it's really important for the Democrats going forward uh, to work at protecting the votes of Democrats and encouraging the Democratic base to come out to vote. Uh, that should be their number one priority above and beyond hoping and praying that they could, what, slice off 2%. It was at 1.5% of Trump votes that they were aiming to slice off. I don't know if they're going to ever get that much, maybe 2% now. So I'm with you yeah. on this. Uh, I actually think Peter Cunningham may be more in agreement uh, on this point um, than we anticipate. But it'll be interesting to see. He'll be up there with Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, who, by the way, I don't know, I, I know I sent you this uh, text. As soon as Biden word emerged that Biden may be uh, considering making Rahm Emanuel the secretary of the Department of Transportation, Alderwoman uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Sanchez sent out a letter on a uh, change org petition saying, do not put Rahm in your uh, cabinet, uh, Joe Biden. Yeah. And it's gotten many, many signatures, and I'm I'm with her 100%. You know, I want to know, again, like in the year of our Lord 2020, is there <laughs> anybody outside the Beltway who uh, just has like, you know, uh, is there anybody other than people who have some kind of personal relationship with Rom who likes or cares about Rom Emanuel? What is the Rom Emanuel, like, constituency in 2020? Like, who is out there having any feelings about, that aren't negative about Rahm Emanuel anymore. <laughs> Maybe Peter I, can tell us. Yes. Maybe poor Peter. <laughs> Peter's listening to this show right now. I'm not going. <laughs> no, come on, PC. You know we love you. We'd be nice to you. Uh, your question is a very good one. We'll see what Peter says. I don't. Uh, to answer your question, no. Nobody other than the Beltway. Nobody other than George Stephanopoulos. Oh, where, where then my next question would be, like, what is he good for? What is he? What what will he be good for as transportation secretary? This guy's this guy's good at one thing and one thing only, which is raising a ton of money yeah. and getting elected in you know a place that has a good deal of uh, well-to-do white liberals. What is he? What's he going to do for the nation's transportation issues? Uh, it's a very good question. I would add to that list. Uh, he's very good at self-promotion. Um, so I'd say he's exceedingly good at self-promotion, which is why his name, I think he's running the, I think he's the one who's putting his name out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't he's think anybody else is. About himself. Yeah. Uh, by the way, did you hear I'm being considered for transfer? I'm going to start doing that for myself. Yeah, maybe you start. can be considered for transportation <laughs> secretary, Ben. I don't think so. That would probably mean I'd have to get up earlier in the morning than uh, 10 o'clock. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to your latest story that's in the reader. It's an excellent story. I've already uh, riffed on it uh, on the show. Speaking of transportation. Yes, speaking of transportation. And part of the reason I riffed on it, uh, I'll let you talk about the story. But uh, I just want to give a shout out to the great Michael Girardi. Uh, a dear friend of the show and a great uh, musician uh, writes wonderfully uh, s satirical protest songs. Uh, 
largely some of them are based on stuff he hears on the show. He, he his hit tax increment financing. How about that, Maya? A song called Tax Increment Financing, uh, and it's just a great song. And I love his music. Uh, and he's quoted in this story, so it's a small world. We'll get into how you and Michael Girardi hooked up, but uh, talk about the story. I'll read the headline, and then you take it from there. Hold on, we go. Lightfoot turns city's infrastructure into weapons against protesters. Go ahead, Maya, take it from there. Yeah, so this was a story that um, I was actually approached to write uh, by The Appeal, and uh, we've co-published it with the reader, but it's uh, it, it's a story about, um, basically, The the Appeal is based, uh, the, the main editorial staff is based in New York, and I got a call from one of the editors there who was basically like, what's going on with all these bridge raises? I mean... In New York City, Andrew Cuomo, in, in, in conjunction with the pandemic, like limited the service um, of the of the subway system, the MTA, and it obviously had an, a huge impact on a lot of working people, especially essential workers. And so the question was, you know, what's uh, what's been the effect of these bridge raises? Because we keep seeing it. We keep, you know, just every time there's a big pro- protest popping off in Chicago, we see these stark images of the bridges raised. We hear about... Um, the CTA being shut down, uh, but is it having an effect on just people trying to get around for work? So I basically, um, I was curious about this myself. I didn't really, uh, I hadn't thought about this uh, in much depth before. I guess I kind of assumed that people's work routines were being disrupted, but um, it seemed like a worthwhile thing to try to uh, pursue a few of these stories and and, uh, and get a few people's perspectives kind of in one in, in one place. And so I put out a call on Twitter asking to hear from folks who had been affected in their work commutes. I was also interested in you know whether people's healthcare routines were in any way disrupted. Um, and uh, of course, not surprisingly, I heard. Uh, I heard back from a bunch of people, actually, including Mike Girardi. Um, uh, several people put me in touch with friends of theirs that were affected. And the stories that emerged were, you know, in, in some cases, quite tragic. I mean, starting with the uh, the first big protest back on May 30th, right after um, the, uh, the video of George Floyd's killing uh, came to light and kind of the entire nation took to the streets, um, people were, uh, people were, stuck in dangerous situations. People were not just kettled downtown, like the protest, it wasn't just protesters that were kettled downtown and kind of subject to arrest and um, dealing with kind of this sudden restriction of mobility that had been announced, you know, less than an hour before it took place. And often people didn't even know about it until a few minutes before it took place because it was sent out as an emergency alert on through people's cell phones. And a lot of people didn't get those messages until a couple of minutes before nine. Um, but lots of people who were just going about their work routine um, weren't able to get home. Some people slept in their offices. I mean, the most kind of, um, I guess, m- moving and impactful story that I heard from all the people that I interviewed uh, was this woman who lives down in Roseland um, I think she's uh, at somewhere at 105th Street. So she lives about 14 miles away from her job in River North. And uh, normally it takes her a couple of hours to get to work because she has to take either a couple of buses or the bus and the red line. She talked a lot about how inconsistent and unreliable uh, the CTA service is just on a regular basis anyway. She works the night shift as a security guard at a hotel in River North. So her whole job is literally to protect property. 
And what she felt like was happening, um, you know, starting May 30th and throughout the various uh, moments of protest in the summer was the mayor was mobilizing the city infrastructure to protect property at the expense of working people. Uh, this is what I heard over and over again from the various people that I interviewed. Um, people felt kind of abandoned. And the woman who was a security guard in particular, um, she was explaining that like her, it's kind of, her job is dangerous for her as it is because where she lives, going down the street in a security guard uniform, she's often harassed by young people. She feels unsafe because people identify her as a cop, even though she's not a cop. Um, but she often has to like be very careful about walking around in her uniform. Um, she's been in situations where um, a CTA bus was like taken over by some folks and the bus driver left the bus and she, you know, had to hop off as well, which affected her work commute. And uh, so then, you know, when, uh, when these transit disruptions happened, she ended up getting stuck uh, somewhere on like 65th street and her, her manager had to come and pick her up while she was like in a gas, you know, she had to wait in a gas station that was also like some people came in and stole some stuff while she was there. Um, she, again, she was threatened for being a security guard. So the way she put it is like, uh, you know, I'm going down there to protect their property and the city just basically doesn't care about me. Lori Lightfoot doesn't care about me. So I think this is how a lot of working people felt um, as they were encountering roadblocks and CTA shutdowns and these bridges being raised. And um, it just seems to me that it's worthwhile for us to think about how normalized this has become so quickly. Because until this summer, the last time that the city officials and authorities used the bridges to to as crowd control in this way was in 1855 during the Lager riot. Wow. So it's quite something that within a couple of months, we've just become used to these, these kinds of massive, massive infrastructure dis disruptions, basically. Mm -hmm. And and it, and the love that City Hall and Lori Lightfoot seemed to have taken away from all this is that it was successful. They do it again, I believe, on Election Day. Now, this one baffled me. Like on Election Day, they 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 raised the bridges as part yeah. of a preemptive move. Um, I just never understood. Like, who do they think? Like, what did they think was going to happen? I, you know what I mean. First of all, it's going to take like a week to figure out with Malin who would be the victor. And, and on Saturday, when when the victor was announced, they raised it again. Yeah, they raised it. Wow, people in Chicago are so. Who was that? That that is yeah. Biden won. So who's going to riot? MAGA. MAGA's going to come to Chicago and riot. So you're going to raise the bridges to inconvenience inconvenience people in Chicago. Um, so much of the of your article. Uh, there was a by the way a compelling, not just uh, Michael Girardi's testimony, but the the lawyer. I think his name is Alexander. I'm doing this from memory. A uh, criminal defense lawyer. Yeah, Robert Alexander really compelling story uh, as well about being trapped downtown and uh, having to sleep in his office because uh, he couldn't, I mean, they were, they were stuck there. So I urge everybody to check the story out, but I'll tell you what, my, I don't know if you've seen city so real. I've been talking a lot about yes, it. Yes, Let's talk about it. 
Well, yeah, we had Steve James, uh, the director, on yesterday, and I'm just going to do a little promotion here. Uh, we're going to we're doing a series on City So Real. So next week, Neil Salas Griffin will be a guest. Uh, Ricky Hendon will be a guest on the show to talk about uh, his role uh, in the movie. I always enjoy having Ricky on. He's a lot of fun to talk to. And uh, Timmy Tutton and Katie Tutton will be on uh, as well. And um, to talk about, uh, you know, Tim Tutton's in the movie a lot. Uh, to cry. He's the, like, he's the first. He's the. Tim and Katie are the first people we meet in the movie. Yeah. Yes, they are. And uh, Tim is just. Uh, he got his fist in the air denouncing the Lincoln Yards giveaway. But so many of the themes raised in City So Real about the way in which power is allocated in Chicago and so many communities and people are shut out. And they have to mm-hmm. like bang the door to be heard. And then ultimately they may open the door an inch and then they slam it shut again. Some of that is like on display as uh, thematically in the article you wrote, you know, yeah. it's, it's like nothing has changed in this city. That's one of my takeaways. What was your takeaway? Uh, from, from city. So real, my yes. takeaway was um, <laughs> it's sort of interesting how, it was clear that when they were making this movie, like certain people gave them access and certain people didn't. And I'm sure that the calculation at the time was that the people who didn't give access either had something to hide or they felt like they didn't need any extra exposure and they just didn't need, they just didn't need a, you know, a documentary crew in their faces. And so um, it wasn't surprising, you know, that the people who got who gave the access were, you know, at the, at the time of the election, a lot of people thought they were long shots. So you didn't, these people didn't, Steve didn't, Steve and his crew did not have a lot of access to Bill Daly and Tony Preckwinkle, apparently no access to Susanna Mendoza. Um, so what we have are these kind of, um, uh, interesting profiles of, of the lesser known candidates and Lori Lightfoot, who of course ends up, you know, we end up seeing quite a bit of her in, um, in detail in, in this film. Um, I'm sure at the time they were, you know, again, like they, they were, they were, her campaign was coming from the kind of long shot position. So probably to them, it was a no brainer to, to let Steve uh, and his crew follow them. But I guess to me, it just sort of reinforced the impression I have about Lori as a person, which I've had pretty much like since the beginning of the campaign. And since my very first kind of, glimpses into how she operates um this is a person who i mean maybe this is just endemic to politics i don't know but the way that the harshness with which she speaks about you know her political rivals being screwed or somehow at a disadvantage in those scenes in the in the film that that you know she's driving around in the car on speakerphone with her with her you know, with her campaign team, like she clearly relishes winning and she keep and she, and she keeps grudges. Like, I feel like it came across, um, in, in the film that she's, this is not, this person is not a consensus builder. This is a person that, you know, with, with, with the, with the blacklist basically. 
Um, and not to say that I think that Tony would have been any different. I mean, I think the fact that <laughs> Tony Tony's campaign didn't give them much access. It, I mean, it seems clear they didn't give much access from Tony's campaign. I mean, I think that's pretty indicative of of uh, of, of her political style as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lori likes being the right. Lori likes winning. And uh, for, I think, many of her life experiences, she's probably, that, that approach, that kind of digging her heels in has yielded the kind of results she's wanted. So, um, you know, being open to changing her mind or, or uh, w- welcoming in people who, were, you know, disagreed with her or fought her on something, um, I think is not is not in her political instincts, and the film just kind of confirms that. I mean, I just basically think that the film didn't show us anything we didn't already know about her from even just a year of living under her under her rule. Well, you're getting at uh, the way she deals uh, with other people, and you're—I think you're absolutely right on target. Uh, the one thing that I noted and this kind of shook my head is listening to Lori Lightfoot as she drives around in that car uh, and uh, f-bomb flying. By the way, um, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with cursing. Well, no, it, I, I'm just pointing out uh, that it's a very revealing glimpse of Lori Lightfoot. Just uh, you would not hear Lori Lightfoot talk that way, uh, just a normal discourse. And she was very mad at whoever leaked the, um, uh, the, the, the conversation that she had with the alderman, which probably mm-hmm. shouldn't have been private in the first place. So anyway, yeah. I'm just saying it was a reve- revealing glimpse of, of how she uh, interacts with people. And, but when she talked about uh, the way Chicago's fixed and rigged and, uh, and, the, and the way that uh, they wrench concessions, powerful people wrench conce- try to wrench concessions from ordinary people uh, to use their power, abuse it, and she denounced it. Uh, and, uh, and then we discover she was doing some of the same things uh, herself in this latest budget go-around. So uh, I, I, I was disappointed. I mean, I know you're smiling that I would be disappointed once again. Uh, But, you know, I voted for Lori Lightfoot because I thought she was going to have a different approach to Chicago. And part of the reason I had that attitude is I knew nothing about her other than what she said to me when she came on my shows and what she said in public meetings at the time. And that was reinforced by what she said, you know, to the filmmakers at that time. And I'm just saying, Maya, that she's not exactly the same person uh, as uh, as mayor as she was as candidate, that's putting it mildly. Yeah, I actually think that she, in a lot of ways, she was the same. She is the same person as mayor as she was as a candidate. I mean, what I saw in her as a candidate is a person that was, you know, marketing a lot of promises with lots of like good marketing that that appealed to people who aren't, you know, too. In, I mean, your average your average person out there, your average voter is not like deeply interested in the political machinations that, you know, a longtime player like Tony Preckwinkle or Bill Daly might be involved in. So, you know, I think her message was simple and it came across and there wasn't much of a record to run on. So there wasn't much of anything to explain. Um, and it's funny because in the film, there's a scene where she taught, where she's like criticizing Tony, Tony Preckwinkle for how she's always talking about what she did in the past and not articulating a vision for the future 
And I thought it was kind of a funny critique because like, well, Tony had a record to run on. So yeah. of course she was going to talk about what she did in the past because like, that's what she had to say about what kind of leader she would be. Um, Lori didn't have any record to run on and nothing she could really show for herself. I mean, she's not a person who could say I got 300,000 people insured, you know, she, so what she had was promises about the future and, you know, yeah, people, yeah. people went for it. Obviously people were sick of the same old, same old, and they, they, they were ready for some kind of change. And so they, they invested that energy to her. But one thing I would say that like there, there were two points of, um, I guess criticism that come to mind as far as like how the film was structured. One thing I thought was um, it was kind of a shame that they didn't really, really explain what this whole controversy with Ed Burke was about. I mean, Ed Burke is presented as kind of this almost cartoonish uh, old timey corporate fat cat character in the film, but they didn't really explain what the scandal was about. And the scandal I would argue was not about wheeling and dealing at the expense of ordinary people. The scandal was really about wheeling and dealing amongst privileged people. I mean, he was trying to shake down like a franchise magnet. He wasn't shaking down like a, an ordinary citizen and like saying, you know, if you don't give money to Tony Preikwinkle, we're not going to give your garbage picked up. Hmm. He was trying to strong arm, strong arm, like somebody who was like a franchise millionaire uh, which it doesn't make it right, but but I think it is important to note that like the, the the level at which this corruption was happening was like far removed from ordinary people, um, and uh, and I think that like the film kind of failed to explain what it was about the association between like how Tony and Ed Burke were connected and why that was important. Um, I feel like an outsider who didn't know that information probably didn't understand what what the what, what the connection was and why, why it mattered. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I would say is that like, I wish the film did not have as its very opening scene, something focused on gun violence. I don't know. I'm just like so sick of this trope and of this way of presenting Chicago. And I feel like, I mean, Steve and this team and Kartemquin are like, people from the city they've been working in the city forever they're like hometown heroes in so many ways and i just wonder if like this is part of what gets a project like this made is that like there's certain things that the outside you know that the the big wigs putting this out on hulu or whatever else are uh, national geographic like maybe those people are expecting this kind of thing but i don't know i just feel like it's kind of tired to constantly have the first thing that is mentioned about the city of Chicago having to do with the gun violence here. Yeah. Well, it's a very real uh, problem in the city, put it mildly. Nobody's uh, saying and, it's not, yeah. but it's just like an, it's like we are, are we, we're constantly bemoaning how we're presented in national media as this like, you know, dangerous, violent place. Well then if, it, you know, if we ourselves are presenting ourselves this way, then what do we have to complain about? Like we're part of the problem. Well, I, I just speak for myself. I, I would really, what bothers me is the way the violence in Chicago and the struggles we face in Chicago are manipulated by Donald Trump and national Republicans uh, to exacerbate the very problems and challenges that Chicago is facing. So that's what really bothers me. I, it's not that I'm afraid of a discussion about violence in Chicago. It's just the way it's manipulated. That's what that bothers me uh, on that front. And mm -hmm. 
so that that's just my takeaway in terms of how Chicago is played. The trope, as you say, of violence in Chicago. But it's a very real problem, and it's, it's like a prominent problem. And you know, and the other thing is um, the, the opening scene. It was I'd forgotten. It's just things that so much stuff has happened when he began that movie which is in 2018, we were a lot closer to the Laquan McDonald fallout than we are right now in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic. And yep. when I first saw the movie, I saw it a while ago, but when I literally first time I saw the movie, it jolted me. And I, and I had a common reaction the way you did. It was like, why are we talking about Laquan McDonald? That's like ancient history in Chicago. And then I realized, well, first of all, when he made the movie, it wasn't ancient history. And secondly, in some ways, um, all those issues are very much alive. I will say this uh, in the interview yesterday with Steve, he went at uh, interesting uh, detail to the point that you made about his theories as to why certain campaigns um, cooperated, why others didn't and what they made of him and what, how they were trying to figure out what his angle was and what he was going to mm-hmm. do. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he, uh, dives into that. It's interesting stuff. Uh, city uh, so real, and then of course uh, Tim Tutton uh, <laughs> uh, has a great moment. More than a few great moments in that movie. Uh, all yeah. right, we're gonna we're gonna close with a question. I have to ask you. Uh, you mentioned same old, same old when it comes to Chicago politics. Michael Joseph Madigan uh, is uh, was. On the ropes, we were sort of, maybe, who knows, if the Democrats are actually going to uh, cut the cord. This must give you some thought. Uh, one of the, Maya took the deep dive, was it two years ago? I went, I'm losing track of time. Maya, you went down to the 13th Ward, actually spent some time with uh, Michael Madigan's hand-picked alderman, Marty Quinn. Uh, we talked about it uh, in Backroom Deal, uh, the podcast we do for the reader on election time. Uh, it, you think it's finally come to the point where Michael Madigan, the all-powerful Wizard of Oz, who uh, controls the state party and the uh, the General Assembly so much, will have to step down? You know, uh, people I know for a fact who, like, trust in Madigan's leadership and... As, as unfashionable as that might be, actually think that he's been a very effective and um, and and uh, kind of beneficial speaker in terms of being able to um, get the kind of policies the Democrats want uh, actually you know th- approved and, and and enacted. So people who kind of ideal ideologically find him to be a useful and kind of necessary figure um, are starting to come out of the woodwork making statements that he needs to not seek re-election as speaker. So I feel like this might be it. very, I mean, yeah, I don't know. You see with people like Ed Burke, it's sort of like these kinds of folks tend to really dig in and, and, <laughs> Sometimes they, they get by with the skin of their teeth. And it's interesting to me that people, what people are saying is that this, he needs to not seek re-election as speaker yeah. rather than <laughs> saying, I will not vote for him as speaker. Yeah, good, good point. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think that's kind of yeah. towing an interesting line, but um, 
yeah, I don't know. What 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 I what I'd like what what I'm going to be watching for is if he does seek another term of speaker, who's actually go out, going to go out on the limb and and not root for him? Yeah. And I bet you there's way more people that are telling him not to seek the re-election now than are actually going to go out on the limb and yeah. cast that no vote. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, a little subtle distinction there, you know. Please, boss, step down so you don't put me in the uncomfortable position of having to vote against you. Please. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, all right, Maya. Uh, good to talk to you. Good let's to talk let's to you. just remind folks one more time. Yes, December 1st, mm-hmm. first Tuesdays is going to be online with the hideout online. Uh, please grab your $5 tickets. It'll really help to hideout. Um is really struggling at this time and you can find the event on uh, Facebook. It's first Tuesdays left versus center. We're going to have older woman, Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez and political strategist, Peter Cunningham on with us. And um, you can also get the tickets at noonchorus.com slash hideout. That's noon, like 12 o'clock noon chorus, like chorus in a, a chorus line. Um, noonchorus.com slash hideout um but you can find it on all our social media we're promoting the hell out of it so um uh five bucks lets you into the exclusive live stream you're not going to be able to see it for free later so just grab your tickets now and we really look forward to the conversation very good all right Maya. stay safe and sound we'll talk to you soon all right bye guys all right, that's uh, the great Maya Dukmasafa from the Chicago Reader. Yeah, it's, uh, I urge everybody to check out her story. It's fun. And then, then there's all of a sudden Michael Girardi. Hey, that's our Michael Girardi. Tax increment financing. Who else but Michael Girardi can get a song out of tax increment finance? Trippy won't even mention it. They talk about special tax districts. That's your next song, Michael. Special tax districts. A song about how the Tribune can't quite bring itself to say what it is. I want to thank Maya Duke-Maxifa, pride and joy of the Chicago Reader, outstanding job as she always does, and of course, man, the myth, the legend, pride and joy of all Illinois, without whom the show would not be possible, and as Miles Davis can tell you, yeah, Miles Davis always said this, back home in Alton, that's where Miles Davis is from, ladies and gentlemen, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash, see you tomorrow, everybody. How about Trump a crack? How about Trump a crack? Yay for our teachers! How about Trump a crack? Trump a crack, that's right. How about Trump a crack? Trump a crack, that's right. Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers! <laughs>